Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Right. It is Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. So nice to have you along today. We are getting into a conversation with Chris Eldridge, best known for being the guitar player for the Punch Brothers, who won their very first Grammy this year with their latest record, All Ashore. Before we get into what Chris and I talk about, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co, lin at mcdean.co to get one. Like I said, Chris Eldridge won his first Grammy this year with the Punch Brothers, and Chris has been nominated eight times between the Punch Brothers, the Seldom Seen, and also his work with the guitarist Julian Lodge. This award was long in the making. Chris Eldridge goes by the nickname Critter, grew up around bluegrass. His dad was a member of the Seldom Scene, and Critter was around a lot of influential players when he was younger. After college, he was also a member of the Seldom Scene with his father. Then he was in a group called the Infamous String Dusters. And during that time, that is when Critter met Chris Thiele, who eventually approached him about joining his project, the Punch Brothers, and then Critter had to make the very hard decision as to whether or not he was going to do Infamous String Dusters or the Punch Brothers. But in the end, the Punch Brothers were uh, the band that he chose. In our conversation, Critter talks about how he unsuccessfully tried his hand initially on the electric guitar, could not get a grasp on it. It's pretty funny. His mom gave him this Tony Rice record. He picked up the acoustic and then kind of took it from there. He also talks about how Tony Rice unintentionally revived his childhood nickname back into his adult and professional life. Hilarious story. He is a wonderful human being. Also want to say that uh, Critter's interview on Basic Folk was recorded on Three Mile Island in New Hampshire. No, not that Three Mile Island, but it is a little island on Lake Winnipesaukee where we were both at Miles of Music Camp, which is this wonderful folk-oriented camp founded in part uh, by his partner Kristen Andreessen and also Laura Cortese. You can hear some like nature sounds in the background, some birds. You can also hear kind of like a vocal warm-up at, at some point in the interview, which is pretty hilarious, and like people kind of walking back and forth because his cabin was kind of like on a main drag, but it's fun. We're going to take a listen to a song that appears on his record with Julian Lodge, the record Avalon. We're going to take a listen to the song Butter and Eggs, and then we'll get into our conversation with Chris Eldridge on Basic Folk.
Okay, cool. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, you're so welcome. Pumped. Um, so I wanted to talk about both of your parents. Cool. To start things off, um, your dad Ben Eldridge is a well-known banjo player in the bluegrass group Seldom Seen. Mm -hmm. So you must have had tons of music happening in your childhood. So can you talk a little bit about how music shaped your childhood? Yeah. Well, music was just it. It was a huge part of my childhood. Yeah. My my father used to play in this band called the Seldom Seen. He only he he retired a few years ago. I guess in 2016. But um, but yeah, before that, he was in this band, you know, f since 1971. And so, and I was born in 1982. So I very much grew up oh, like going to concerts. And the Seldom Scene is a great band, you know, there's like wonderful bluegrass band. So I kind of, I grew up around um, great music being made by people who I knew. So, so music to me, and playing music always seemed like a very natural thing. Mm -hmm. Didn't didn't there's nothing weird about it. Nothing not like you're jumping off a cliff or anything to like play a song or play an like instrument. Like not it it wasn't weird, but like did it feel special or did it just feel normal? Um I I think eventually it for me it became special, but but at first it was it was like eating dinner or something like that. Yeah, it was just like okay. a thing that you do cuz you're a person. And um, so that was kind of my dad's scene. And I was around all these great musicians. I got this, you know, Tony Rice and Bill Monroe and all the seldom scene guys and just all kinds of people were just sort of around. But um, my mom had a, um, her, her mom and actually both of her parents kind of got together through a love of classical music. They were huge, like classical music nuts. It's kind of what initially kind of drew them together. Neither one of them played, but... They were just like so passionate about it, and and did they own records or go oh yeah they orchestras and stuff? Yeah, yeah. All, like all that Everything, stuff yeah. yeah and um and so music was like almost more of a religion on that side of the family mm -hmm. um and we listened to all kinds of stuff. My mom and I driving in the car would listen to everything you know listen to Glenn Gould. We'd listen to yeah, Oscar Peterson. Glenn Gould is that classical? Yeah, he's a yeah. great classical pianist who who made these like really wonderful records of uh, Bach back in the like late 50s. They, they kind of set the world on fire back then. They were almost like breakout uh, things, kind of bu bumped out of the classical bubble. <laughs> and actually, my grandfather hated Glenn Gould for, oh, for the record. He was, was kind of like... He was a little more trad. Experimental. Okay. But my grandmother and my mom and I, we all like totally loved Glenn Gould. Oh, that's so cool. But, um... But, you know, it was that and, and, like, musical theater records and Joni Mitchell and just, like, you know, the Pointer Sisters. I remember we had this Pointer Sisters CD in the car, Graceland by Paul Simon. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff that we would just listen to a bunch uh, at home. So, so, so it was cool. Like, I, I had, you know, bluegrass on one side because that's what my dad played and the seldom scene played. And that's the music that I was around being made in, you know, in person. But... But then we were always listening to all this other mm -hmm. diverse, really cool music. I think I learned slightly different things about music from both of them. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, my mom always had like a really open mind. My dad has an open mind too, but uh, but he definitely um, has the things that he likes. And like, I, I definitely know when he doesn't like something, you mm -hmm. know, it's like, and... Um, How does he feel about the Punch Brothers? I think... To be co totally honest, I think in the early days, they were just like, what is this? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Um, 
you had a perfectly good bluegrass band. But I think now they've they've come to appreciate uh, like my dad and and kind of portion of the family uh, have come to appreciate that it's a it's a cool thing, you know, and that we we really work on. We're trying to make our own music that we haven't really heard before. We're trying to fill mm -hmm. a void that that for us uh, was there and we could kind of sort of perceive and we've kind of tried to poke our way slowly through the dark and, and fill that void. Um, and so I think they've kind of come to appreciate that, appreciate it for that reason. And also the band has been, you know, we've been we've done pretty well for ourselves. So I think they've kind of been like, right. okay, yeah. there's some yeah. sense of vindication. <laughs> Um, bluegrass, of course, was everywhere for you when you were a kid, but did you actually like bluegrass? Yeah, as a kid, I loved it. You know, I mean, some of my I, some of my most potent memories of music are memories of the seldom seen. Like, just being at shows and hearing John Duffy, who was their ultra-legendary tenor singer and mandolin player. He used to play with the country gentleman, but Duffy and, and Mike Aldridge, who was like the you know, one of the great, uh, he's on the Mount Rushmore of the Dobro. You mm -hmm. know, it's like probably Josh Graves, Mike, and Jerry Douglas are mm -hmm. like the three biggest icons on that instrument. So I was around these these guys, um, and not to mention everybody else in the band. I'm just singling them out. But like, the band was amazing. So so uh, growing up, I mean, I, ha I just heard this stuff, and, I, and it got seared into my brain, and it was really good, mm -hmm. and I loved it. Um, and when I got a little bit older, when um, I started actually getting a little more interested in music, I think, you know, when I was probably like nine or ten, I started wanting to kind of uh, rebel maybe a little bit against what my parents were up to. Like, I didn't want to play string band music. I wanted electric guitars, and I wanted drums, and I wanted volume, and, you know, all that right. stuff. Right, right. So I got... I got into kind of some some other stuff, but I was really and I got I got into guitar. My my friend Jay Starling, whose father John Starling, who who just passed away, but was one of the most incredible singers ever in bluegrass. Um, Jay was two and a half years older than me, and he uh, was my hero. I wanted to be just like Jay Starling, and so um, when when he started playing guitar, I started I, I wanted to play guitar, and that meant I was going to play electric guitar, and 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 I did that, and was like really pretty pretty lousy at it for a while. But I came I kind of I kind of stumbled back into bluegrass um, some years later when my mom got me a, a this Tony Rice record, this one that wound up being kind of a pivotal moment for me and, and bringing me back into the acoustic music that. It turned out I could kind of play. I sort of understood it, whereas I kind of really flailed along at the electric guitar stuff. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Um, it's true, though. <laughs> it's really true. So something else that came up in reading about how you learned guitar was that it was like a very solitary experience for you. Oh, yeah. And now you're like collaborating basically all the time um can you talk about that juxtaposition of those two experiences yeah well um i mean it's still i still kind of take solace in music as like a, a solo kind of meditative enterprise i mean i'm 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 kind of an introvert you know i can i love people and i love being among people but like i can get kind of worn out uh relatively quickly if i'm around people too much and i just kind of need just to be by myself and so like the guitar for me and music is a great uh can be a great refuge 
Um, and I've always appreciated it for that reason. Um, it's this thing you can kind of just meditate into. You can kind of zen into it. It's like, um, and as I, especially as I've gotten older, I've, I've come to appreciate it more as, more practicing as a practice, sort of almost the way someone would speak about like a meditation practice. Mm. And I, I, I wish I actually practiced more than I do. A lot mm. of times it seems like there's just enough other stuff going on in life that's right. keeping me from... Just like someone who meditates. Probably, yeah. Like, I don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But five minutes to sit down and think of nothing. Yeah. But but to me, the guitar is like... Playing, playing music is really uh, cool for that same reason. It's, it is sort of this solitary thing. And, and also a lot of the musicians, for whatever... Kind of unrelated to that, I think, uh, but a lot of the musicians who I really found myself attracted to when I was a boy um, were these kind of like um, kind of like virtuoso kind of instrumentalist people people who had like a really clear vision and a really clear voice through their instrument mm. I mean, I've always you know I love James Taylor or Joni Mitchell you know the people with these like great voices I've always loved that but I was uh, songs for me personally meaning music that has words uh that always came second, which I know is like, I'm very much in the minority of people. Most people are like words first and the music mm -hmm. is kind of whatever. For me, I was very much music first. And so a lot of the, a lot of the people who I, I really admired the most and, and just um, kind of wanted to be like were these instrumentalists. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like, and they were great at being instrumentalists. There was this high level of um, ability and not, not that, it's not that the ability was what drew me in in the first place, but I think I always kind of understood that that was like, for what I was trying to do, that was like sort of a prerequisite that you had to like sort of climb a bit of a mountain and, and become a good player. And, and so that was, um, that also led to a lot of hours by myself. It was right. just trying to, trying to work on that, not just kind of strive towards something. There's like a, as, as far as I can understand, there was an interesting switch where you were trying to play electric guitar, like Eric Clapton and the Allman Brothers, but then you were eight, you couldn't really latch onto it the way that you discovered when you discovered Tony Rice and David Grisbane. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was at that point I'd kind of I kind of moved on to some like kind of weirder music. By like, I mean, I, the Allman Brothers and Clapton were like like first mover kind of electric guitar stuff Stevie mm -hmm. Ray Vaughan and then as time went on I, I kind of got into like more kind of like um progressive or like kind of jazz music I got into Chick Corea and Return to Forever and the Flectones which kind of Bela Fleck and the Flectones which is kind of close to the world that I grew up in and um and there was this guy this electric guitar player who i kind of had forgotten about but i real just realized recently that i i loved this guy when i was young and this guy joe satriani who's like a oh, shredder yeah. but what like does he, do? he does he does like the g3 tour yeah he did that and it was like for a long time i was like man that stuff is whack i'm i, I don't <laughs> i don't i want to do like music that's like more but whatever that guy is awesome i think uh i i just someone sent me a joe satriani song the other day it's like that we used to listen to when we were kids and it was like, it was just so good. His 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 whole concept and his idea was so clear. And actually, it was really beautiful and melodic. And it has like this incredible like soul and feel to it. This this stuff, which is why I think it kind of captured my imagination when I was a boy. And I, 
it's funny i kind of like lost touch with that for a while but just just recently i was like wait no that was actually that was cool music that was good stuff uh everybody else's opinions be damned um uh everybody else's snobby opinions be damned by the way so um so i was getting more into that kind of stuff and uh and i really just was lousy at it but but it was kind of expanding my mind you know um and I think when I got the Tony Rice record, she got me this record called Acoustics, which was an instrumental record. Back in the 70s, he, 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 um, he was playing bluegrass, like, like straight-ahead bluegrass, doing some of his solo stuff. And most notably, he played in a band with uh, Ricky Skaggs and J.D. Crow and Jerry Douglas and this guy Bobby Sloan. J.D. Crow in the New South. And they were this really iconic bluegrass band who sort of redefined this way that you could play bluegrass really... Um, they just played so in time. Their grooves were so solid, and they sang so in tune, and and all the gestures were so clear. And it was, it was um, the musicianship was just so high. It was so elevated above the music, the bluegrass that had come before it. Not that it was better music, but it was just different. They they were kind of working on some different stuff. So, Tony had really been uh, kind of associated with this, like pretty straight ahead bluegrass, even though they were kind of cutting their own thing, their own path. It was bluegrass. And then he met David Grisman, uh, the great mandolinist. Um, and Grisman had this idea for, for string band, instrumental string band music that was kind of bringing in new influences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, he probably wouldn't have talked about it that way. But functionally, you know, it was like harmonically, it was a little more interesting. The songs had more clear structure and more complex structures. Uh, and it was music. You your guitar so you could I know. hear it. Well, you're talking about. I do, but I don't even know if I could like really, if I could like, um, I don't know if I could really uh, capture like the David Grisman thing on well, here. Is there any way to like sing it or something just to like get an here. idea? Here, I do. Well, I do have my guitar. Oh well. <laughs> so like, uh, uh, so like with J.D. Crow in the New South, you know, they they were playing, it's, um, you know, bluegrass, like the the classic song that they did uh which i don't know but i can i know the melody sort of and yeah. i probably know a few words is uh the old home place it's like it's been 10 long years since i left my home on a cabin where i was born something like that and anyway it's like bluegrass you know right. kind of stuff uh, so and it's like the straightforward Ish. I mean, they were yeah. kind of they were cutting their own path. I mean, and, and to this day, that music is still influential because they did something a little different. But it, to my perspective, or from my perspective, it's still kind of pretty relatively traditional. But like the David Grisman quintet was playing music. Uh, like there's this song, Fishgale. It's a weird rhythm. And here's the melody. like this weird but you have this whole string band playing it that and and they they kind of built it so that the music made a little more sense than probably that sound like Mm -hmm. it made but but clearly that's a very different kind of thing than what we were just playing yeah yeah yeah. and and um 
so Tony, anyway, Tony got, got kind of captivated by Grisman's concept and moved out to California and played, uh, they called it dog music. That was like their name for David Grisman's Dave, music, yeah, D-A-W-G. And, um, and then Tony started making some solo records and kind of exploring his concept of that branch of music, mm -hmm. you know. And that's the, the CD that my mom gave me was of one of those Tony, Tony Rice solo records where he was just playing this instrumental music mm -hmm. that was kind of had um, more sophisticated harmony. The rhythms were a little more sophisticated than bluegrass, but it was still like fundamentally string band music. It was still rooted like in, in, its most, in the most core part of its DNA, that bluegrass kind of rhythm, that bluegrass drive was still in there. That was when I was really able to kind of like focus in and hone in and start kind of figuring out what he was doing and decoding the music. And I, I just got, I found a lot of focus when I found that music. And how did you actually get to study with Tony Rice? Well, he and my father were were buddies. Like Tony, um, Tony actually almost joined the Seldom Scene back in the day, uh, back in the mid '70s. Uh, and and instead of joining the Seldom Scene, he wound up, uh, to make a long story short, wound up moving out west and joining the David Grisman oh, wow. Quintet. There was like there were a couple other pieces to that that story, but the, the that's the short answer. Is he was going <laughs> to join the scene. Um, and my dad played on one of his early solo records, and you know when Tony would come to D.C., he would you know crash on the family's couch back. This is before I was born, but um, so they're just kind of old friends, and so I I kind of knew him growing up. Uh, it was just it was Tony. I didn't think much of him. He's just like some dude who who was kind of around, and and it was when I got a little older that I and I started appreciating his music and listening to his music um, that I was just kind of dumbfounded right. by, by it because he's you, such a profound beautiful musician yeah when your mom gave you the tony rice record you're like oh it's tony <laughs> or were you like oh i'll listen i i you know he his music meant always meant so much to her specifically and now that, that was something that we like would listen to in the car i mean it was his music was kind of pretty omnipresent in my life mm -hmm. whether i was conscious of it or not but then like she gave that to me at a really key point in my development like as a guitar player i was like this young guy who's getting into guitar and, and wanting to play guitar in a certain way and that record uh acoustics just just you know fired me up i'd never heard i don't think i'd ever heard that particular side of tony's music i'd heard a lot of the vocal music that's what we were mostly listening to but there was just this incredible virtuosity and clarity of thought and this amazing rhythmic drive that that music had mm -hmm. that that was just so cool I, I loved it kind of immediately yeah all right um i read somewhere that tony rice gave you the nickname critter but mm -hmm. then uh sharon of rick and sharon told me a different story so what is the origin this this actually there's a third. There's a third uh, part of that that actually has to do with miles of music, or it's related to miles of music, where we're f doing this remote podcasting from. Um, so yes, everybody called me uh, before I was born. When I was in utero, my parents referred to me as the critter. Mm -hmm. They were just like, "Oh, the critter's kicking again." Uh, I don't know if they figured out I was going to be Christopher yet or whatever, but but they called me the critter. And then apparently, when I was born. Uh, people still do, and, and I am Christopher. I'm Christopher Curtin Eldridge. And so, um, wait, what's your middle name? Curtin. Oh, I thought you said yeah. like Curtin. Cr yeah, no, <laughs> Curtin, C U R T I N. Um, my social security number, by the way, oh, yes. is no. <laughs> what's um, your mother's maiden name. Yeah, real yeah, quick? it's, it's <laughs> um, 
but but yeah, so so they just called me Critter because it's not so far off of Christopher and and um, and my my family calls me Christopher for the most part, which um, they're the only people in the world who ever called me that, but they still call me that. It's kind of nice. Um, so they called me Critter, and it by it kind of went away. You know, by the time I was, I don't know, five, seven years old, when, when I was kind of getting to be a slightly bigger kid, uh, they started calling me Chris. And interestingly enough, I went to Merlefest my freshman year in college. I went to Oberlin College, where um, when I was a freshman, Zach Hickman, who uh, is here at the camp and and plays bass with Josh Ritter and has done all kinds of stuff. Played Previous music. guest on this podcast. Oh, okay. So you guys already know Zach. Yeah, yeah. Zach's, Zach's the best. Um, so Zach, um, caught, win- oh, right. We went to, we went to Merlefest when I was in college and Tony called me Critter. He's, he was just like, he was the one vestigial, uh, human call- still calling me Critter, you know? He was, oh yeah. He was like, Hey Critter, what's shaking? You know? And, yeah. uh, and some of my other college friends who were there, Zach didn't go on that trip. They heard, they heard him calling me Critter all weekend. And, uh. And so, how could you not love that? Yeah, which was cool, and like I, I didn't think much of it, but Zach Hickman caught wind of this when we got back from Merlefest that year, back to school. Zach caught wind that Tony Rice called me Critter, and he was like, "Critter, that's the perfect nickname for you. That's who you are. You're Critter." And then so Zach really brought that to the fore, really started calling me Critter, and then he started. This was at Oberlin. This is at Oberlin. He started a band, a uh, quartet, that was um, that later turned into the infamous String Dusters. This band called Stable Horse, which was me and Chris Pandolfi and Andy Hall, who are the banjo player and dobro player for the String Dusters, and Zach. And it was called Stable Horse. And, and we had a band now with two Chris's. And so, you know, it just made life easier for me to be Critter, which mm. Zach was already advocating for, I think, anyway. <laughs> And it and it just kind of took over. And I've always been. Then once I left the String Dusters, I was in a band with Chris Thiele. So two Chris's. Two Chris's. So yeah. the the Critter thing just became very. Uh, it became very uh, strongly set in stone. Yeah. So you were in the Seldom scene for a little while. Was mm-hmm. your dad also in that band? Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. was that like for you to be in a band with him? It was awesome. It was it was really fun because he he and my mom got divorced when I was very young. Um, I was four, and they were they they always were. It was they were friendly. It was cool. We we lived um, four blocks apart on the same street. Like my mom was was two oh nine on this street. My dad was six oh nine, and so it, it was cool. Like from a very young age, I could walk and move freely from one house to the other. But um, but I grew up at my mom's house. Like, that's basically where I lived. And I would go with my dad sometimes on weekends if he'd have a show or something. But once I got older and started playing music more, that really became this cool thing that we could share together, where I'd, we'd go to a show um, and play together. We'd travel on the road. We'd drive to, you know, Lexington, K- Kentucky from from Fredericksburg, where, where we grew up. And, and, like, we'd just drive there and play the gig and hang out and drive back. And I had, I got to do this for, um, I mean, full time for maybe a couple of, of years and then kind of part time, uh, when I was in college, I would, you know, nepotism was, was strong. So I'd, I'd like <laughs> sit in with the band if they were close by or. How good of a guitar player were you at that time? 
you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't think I was embarrassing myself. I, I, but I, I also would not have, uh, earned a slot on the stage by my merits alone, considering they'd never had like a guy who played guitar like that. You know, there was no reason for them to have right. someone doing what I was doing there. You met Chris Thiele in 2005 when you were in Infamous String Dusters. That's correct. correct? Well, um, the Dusters were just, yeah, the, I don't even know if we had solidified our name at that point. Um, but yeah. But it seems like you, and correct me if I'm wrong, you had to make a choice between Punch Brothers and the String Dusters? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Was that hard? It was very hard. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was, that was, wound up being like an extremely painful chapter of my life because I was very, um, close to the guys in the String Dusters. I loved them mm-hmm. very dear, dearly. They were, they were kind of like brothers to me. And, um, and, and the band is a great band. It was like an awesome string band. Um, and we had all kind of been talking about doing this band for a long time. Uh, and, and I was like, they were waiting for me to get out of college. And then we we're going to all move to Nashville and start mm-hmm. this band, which is what happened. Um, and pretty soon thereafter, like when we finally got Travis Book, who was the, the bass player in the band, um, that was right around the time we were trying to figure out who our bass player was going to be. Um, because Alan Bartram, this is probably really boring, but it's a little, <laughs> little bit of history that I don't think has been documented. Um, Alan Bartram, who's this great bass player um, who now plays with the Del McCurry Band, was the original bass player in the String Dusters. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Alan was an original member of the band, and he basically he had a good gig at the time with playing with Kenny and Amanda Smith and didn't want to join the, the Dusters. So we had, to, we had to figure out, okay, this guy's not in it, and we're really going to be in it. We're going to do this band, like, for real. This is, like, yeah. going to be our band. Uh, which is that attitude was part of why it wound up being so hard when I left. And then we found, um, we remembered Travis. We remember we had this great jam session with Travis. So Travis came out to Nashville in April of 2005 for his kind of first rehearsal and kind of tryout with the band. Mm -hmm. And we played, um, I think we played, it went well, and we were like, "I I think this is our guy. And he came back, I think he played his first gig with the band having moved to Nashville at the Station Inn in July of 2005, which was the same month that Thiele called uh, basically to form what would become Punch Brothers. So it was like the timing kind of was, was sort of similar, but but it was, you know, the, pre, the Dusters predated it by a bit, but we'd been talking about it and dreaming about it for so long mm-hmm. that when I wound up kind of being faced with this choice of like, I can't actually do both. Both of these bands want to be like real full-time things. Yeah. And and I just felt like my potential for musical growth was higher with with Thiele, uh yeah. and and those guys because um, the music that we were that we kind of came together to play was was so far beyond anything I like could have imagined mm-hmm. at that point, and that that was always kind of one of the things for me about music. Part of that monastic thing that I was talking about loving earlier when we were talking is just. that sense of growth and development like that to me is like that's part of you just kind of keep moving forward and you want to that's part of what i'm in it for Mm -hmm. you know it's not to be the best anything but just to keep developing personally and and that was kind of a a, an unparalleled opportunity for that sort of thing and so yeah it wound up being really tough but i left the band and it was there was lots of resentment and tough 
vibes for a while, but which are all in the past now. But yeah. but it was it was tough. Yeah. It was tough. All right, you ready to talk about the Grammys? Oh gosh. Uh, okay, sure. Punch Brothers been nominated six or seven times. I don't even you know. You were nominated with Seldom Seen one time, and Julian Lodge one time. So something like nine Grammy nominations. Yeah. For you and no Grammys for Critter until this year. Yeah, we 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 finally brought one home. Eighth, eight, I think it was the eighth one. Eighth time, eighth one's the charm. It was a surprise. I mean, we so there were only three of us there. It was me and and uh, Noam and Gabe. So Thiele and Paul, uh, cohort were not there because we just thought, oh, there's no way we're gonna win. We're it was the, like the seventh time. Well, yeah, and we're in the folk category with Joan Baez on her farewell record. Like I see, I see. The and we're not even like a folk. I I don't know what you call Punch Brothers, but I mean, I guess we're as much a folk band as we are anything else. But um, you know, it would just seem so certain. It's like Joan Baez folk category farewell record. That done. Uh, we'll just you know enjoy the party and right. and go, you know, have a nice night in L.A. Right. <laughs> but but then we then they called our name and it was a it was like a serious surprise. Who got on the mic and was like? Well, it's about time. Uh, no, Noam. It... Well, Noam is very funny, right? <laughs> Noam literally could have a career as a comedy writer. Yeah. Straight up. And, uh, and yeah, so he got up there and said, you know, folks, this, this um, gosh, this award is, um, it's really, um, wow, it's really overdue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and had, then he roasted, proceeded to roast Thiele and Paul, who would, for not coming, yeah. That's really funny. But yeah, is that good. just like off the cuff? He didn't plan that. I th- he, we were sitting in the seats, and you know, like a, a few categories before ours uh, came up. He he nudged Gabbers. He's like, "Wait, what if we actually win this thing? Like, I should have something to say. We need to figure out who to thank." So so I think Pickles, his brain started scrambling. You know, ten minutes before we walked up, and Gabbers. Uh, nickname Pickles. Oh yeah, sorry, Pickles is Noam. Yeah, yeah. Noam Pickelny, Pickles, and then <laughs> Gabbers. Gabe Witcher is Gabbers. Um, yeah, and Gabbers started started you know putting down people we knew we needed to thank. This wasn't gonna. Ha- we weren't gonna win. I mean, that wasn't like that wasn't gonna happen. But but it was it was good. It was. I'm I'm just really grateful that he got to roast the other two guys in the band. That's funny. Yeah. Oh man, what changes for you now that you have a Grammy? Absolutely nothing. Nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> nothing at all. I've got, I've got a new thing that I'm gonna have to um, figure out, find a box for when we move. But that's about it. Like, <laughs> how heavy is it? Oh, I don't know. It's like, Kristen, so, how heavy is that thing? How, you know, how heavy is that damn thing? <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's five like, pounds, ten it's pounds. Like, it's like a good, I don't five, know. Yeah. It's like a heavy it's, kitten. Yeah. It's, it's like, like a heavy, heavy kitten. Heavy kitten, and it's it's awesome. And then I think like the biggest dilemma is like where to display it that feels like both respectful of the honor and not narcissistic. I, I have a friend who line. I have a friend who has the, the the best solution for that. He has he has a Grammy, and uh, he what he did is he put it uh, on his toilet. He put it on the on the the top of the toilet <laughs> like on tank. The tank on the tank because you know so you're not. People are thinking that like you're not taking yourself too seriously, but everyone sees it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think Elton John does that too. Does he? Yeah. Is that Elton's thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Put, it, put your Grammys in the bathroom. Can, can, is this your main guitar? 
the This, this is the one that I, that I wind up uh, playing out the most. It's got a pickup in it. it, it this was my main guitar for years. Uh, and, and now it's the one that I use, um, you know, on live for here and, and with Punch Brothers, basically when I'm using a pickup. I, so I rarely record with it. Is but it the 1939? No, this no. is a 1954 uh, D28. So, Martin. Uh, you're, I read an article um, where Julian Lodge, who uh -huh. you played with, you've recorded with him, he was talking about how one of the reasons your playing together works is that your guitars are really good friends which is like so sweet yeah we have we, we've wound up like trying a bunch of things out over the years but but yeah i've got a, a 1939 d28 and he's got a 1939 00018 and those two guitars kind of nest together really well like almost like russian dolls it's like the my my guitar has kind of this big it's it it's uh you know it can do stuff, but it's kind of got this big low end, mm -hmm. um, and his kind of tucks right in there, and, and they complement each other well. So I also read that the serial numbers are like 600 away, so is it possible they were made like right around, like in the same oh, place yeah, I by mean, the same person? Oh, maybe? definitely. I mean, all those guitars were made. It was a small factory back then, you know, so yeah, they were definitely made by the same people. That's cool. For sure. And, and, and the fact that they are so close, I mean... When, when serial numbers get to be like, you know, 10, 20, even 50 serial numbers apart, you can bet that two guitars, because Martin, you know, they came out uh, sequentially. Those, mm -hmm. They were stamped sequentially. Um, and so a lot of those will be made from the same piece of wood. And a piece of wood definitely has a sound. Like, like uh, the same tree? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, you'll, if you play two guitars from the same batch, they will tend to have a very similar voice. Which is kind of weird and cool how, how like, whatever that tree uh, went through that put the sap in it in this particular way or however it works, like, it's a, it's a real thing. They'll it's sound cool. the same. They sound like siblings. Julian also described you as one of the most open-minded, willing, dangerous guitar players there is. And That's also crazy. That, yeah, I know. <laughs> also that playing with you was an empathetic experience. Well, hopefully that part's true. I try to one one of my things that I I try to do as a as a you know member of an ensemble or a musician. This is one of the things that Tony Rice taught me when I was young. Was um, you know this idea that uh, you want to make everybody else sound good. You want to make everything around you sound good. Your your the idea is to collaborate with your fellow musician to make like pleasant sounds whatever that means i mean it, and that could be pleasant doesn't mean that it has to sound smooth or anything i mean it could sound jagged and angular and out of tune even if that's kind of what the music wants but like um but that your 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 gig is to like collaborate and make music with people and so that's a thing that with julian and everybody that's that's kind of something i always try and make happen is just like make other people f sound better and feel better when they're playing music the other day, uh, you were talking in a class here uh, at Miles of Music Camp about how important it is to listen to the other players. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? And maybe, I, I mean, I've, I'm not a musician, but I definitely, that resonated with me as mm. like somebody who interviews people. Like, yeah. one of the most important parts about interviewing somebody is listening, but that yeah. definitely was a skill for me to develop. Right. Um, what's been your path with learning that very lesson about listening? Well, um, I think 
Well, again, that piece of advice that Tony gave me was like came at a good time because when I was 19, you know, I was kind of on this mission to become this like, you know, crazy guitar player. But you know, I kind of I kind of realized that I don't know that like I was just more interested in, in trying to trying to make music that was that was good and complete and whole. And the way to the way to best do that is just. You can't do that unless you're listening. I mean, it's like if you're not if you're not actively as a musician, if you're not actively using your ears to listen to what's going on around you, and yet you're participating in this art form that's like completely aural. I mean, there can be a there can be a visual or experiential component to it. You know, you can watch someone play a song and that can kind of enhance it. But I don't think anyone would argue that a blind person couldn't experience music on the same level that a sighted person could. So so if that's true, it's like it's this thing that happens really through sound. Mm. And it's like so you have to be just listening. You have it you have to be taking in the entire canvas and the entire picture of what's happening on. Because it also it develops in real time. You know, it's not like a painting where it's just there it's this static thing. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, if it were a painting, that would be like painting with your eyes closed, you know, mm -hmm. if you weren't listening. But but you just have to be engaged and you have to try and hear and love the music that you're hearing and hopefully contribute uh, in a way that you love uh, to the music that you're hearing. Like you want to you wanna not just focus in on your part. You want to not just focus in on the other person's part or the other people's part. You want to kind of rise above and listen to it all. You want to hear it all happening. And I feel like that's... When you get in that place, you're you're in a place where it's uh, uh, it's not about you, and it's not it's not about any of that stuff. It's just about being present, and and it's about the music being good, hopefully, and supporting the music. The music is this external thing that's more important than any person there. Um, all right, can you stick around for the lightning round? Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll be right back. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Tina and Her Pony, a queer duo bringing traditional Appalachian music and vocal harmonies into the 21st century. Visit tinaandherpony.com. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, wiupfm.org. All right, Critter, are you ready? I'm ready. It's the lightning round. Okay. All right, these are fun questions. You give me one word or one sentence answers. We just get it like lightning. Okay. All right, ready? Uh, all right. Dogs or cats or something Dogs. else? Okay. What is your coffee order? Uh, matcha latte. Favorite With US... oat milk. Sorry, it's really bougie. <laughs> Favorite U.S. city? Uh, New York. Well, or New Orleans, but probably New York. First album you bought with your own money? Oh God, um, I don't know, but I, I think the first album I ever had was uh, MC Hammer, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. <laughs> the room likes that. Uh -huh. um, what was your first concert? Seldom Seen. Dream collaboration? Oh, um, I would have said Julian Lodge, but but we play together, so that's, that's really crazy. Um, I don't know. Oh, Jim Keltner. I'd love to play with Jim Keltner sometime. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Uh, Beatles. Oh, you're a good kid. 
I love the Stones too, but but Beatles. Totally. Okay. Do you like smooth or chunky peanut butter? I uh, I prefer. Boy, that's tough. It really depends on the mood. I can go either way, honestly. They Fly- both have their place in my life. Flying or invisibility? Flying. Um, Star Trek or Star Wars? Wars. What is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Most beautiful place I've ever visited. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is gonna sound real cheesy, but because I can't think of a spot, it's it's the 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 number of places that are awesome uh, are overwhelming. I can't think of them. But I was just looking through a telescope the other uh, day here. Mm-hmm. One of the one of our campers here at camp Noah brings a telescope every year, and we were checking out Jupiter and had all these crazy moons, and you could actually see it with your eye looking through the telescope. That was pretty insane. That'd be kind of fun. <laughs> I like that answer. Yeah. Critter, thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. Yes. Good stuff from Chris Eldridge. Wonderful human being. Cannot wait to see him again. Uh, and check out the Punch Brothers. Check out Julian Lodge. Check out everything that uh, Chris Eldridge has ever done. Thanks to Laura McCarthy for producing Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. You can check out our newsletter. You can sign up for it at cindyhouse.net. There's also a Facebook group called Basic Folk Basics. You can sign up for it. Check it out. Thanks a lot for listening. Tell all your friends that you listen to the best folk music podcast in the world and that they need to listen to it too. Everybody listen to Basic Folk. Okay, thanks. Bye.